this is an echo from the past. A rerun, if you will. And in this way, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. This one was released on the 1st of March 2015. And in this episode, my guest is filmmaker Nick Fackler that went to Gabon and made a documentary, mockumentary, you could say, about Iboga called Sick Birds Die Easy. Enjoy. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I will be talking with film director Nick Fackler about his documentary Sick Birds Die Easy, which was shot in the same location where I went for my Bewiti initiation in Gabon, West Africa. This is what one reviewer said about the film. Sick Birds Die Easy, for all its bizarre self-indulgence and white privilege run amok, is an insanely entertaining head trip. It also makes a pretty good case to introduce the Iboga plant to the West, if only to prevent future assaults by drugged-out tourists who get lost in the jungle whilst playing Blair Witch. If there was ever a film to capture what happens to your brain on drugs, I suspect this is it. Tell us about this uh, film, Sick Sick Birds Die Easy. Um, Well, it's a long story. It started in about uh, 2011. I was contacted by this uh, guy named Steve Hayes, and uh, he said, hey, I want to make a film in Africa. Uh, He didn't really know what he wanted it to do about. He knew he wanted it to be kind of like a pseudo-documentary real film, and I was really eager to be be making a film. I had... Two years before that, I had released my first film, and then there was this big economic collapse in America, and it became very hard to make films for a while. And so when I was given this opportunity to make a film kind of on anything I wanted, I kind of jumped at it. And what I was really interested in at that time was um, spirituality and the use of plants to achieve states of consciousness where you could commune with spirits. I was I just I was looking beyond myself. I was at a point in my life where I wanted to look behind all the doors and I thought that this filmmaking is my way of doing that. It's my chosen art form and medium and so I pitched to this filmmaker like well, let's go to Gabon and and learn about Iboga and have the story take place there and he said yes. And that's how it started. And it's the film itself is is a uh, is a strange one. I'm not sure quite how to describe it. <laughs> Would you? Um, how, how did you find all those crazy people in the movie? So, you know, I I think I first read about iboga, which is the plant in Gabon that has been used for all these rituals for you know, so many thousands of years. Um, I read about it in maybe a Terrence McKenna book, I think, you know, and then there's like Daniel Pinchbeck had his book that mentioned it and, you know, and, and 
so I watched as many films on it as I could on YouTube, and one of them was this like National Geographic, and Tatsio was in it. And so I emailed the filmmaker, I think his name's Josh. I emailed Josh, and I said, hey, could you get me in touch with Tatsio? And then that's when I started learning about what Tatsio does in Gabon, which is he is a shaman, and he's a Frenchman. He's, he's a white man in Africa who is respected as a shaman, and he is kind of acting as a bridge between the old world and the new. So he has his own, um, I guess you just call it a compound, you know, but he calls it a village. It's kind of this walled-in compound where it's him, and he takes kids off the street, and he brings in, you know, Westerners that want to experience... Uh, you know, this sort of ancient magical culture, which is native to Gabon, but then over the course of, you know, Gabon being colonized and it was basically eradicated from the people. And so now it's mostly Christian and Muslims living there. But because of people like Tatio, this ancient religion of Bwiti is becoming uh, more recognized, you know, the most, the most amazing experience I had there was we were out in the jungle, and you'll probably, you know what's going on here. You, you know, you get introduced to the jungle and bathed in the river, sacred river. And I remember pulling up in this car, we had two pickup trucks full of Africans and Westerners all covered in paint and shaking rattles. And then pull, we pulled up right next to a Christian church and we saw all these Africans coming out dressed in kind of like these vintage Victorian era suits and dresses. And it was just an interesting thing to see these two worlds bumping into each other, you know. And Yeah, and we, we basically made a film there. And I went to Africa hoping to make this one film. I had written a script about it, and I was, I, but I basically just wanted to sort of search myself. I think filmmaking is a way to search yourself and to explore yourself. I think any kind of art form is that. So I went to Africa trying to learn about, you know, the bigger questions you ask yourself and uh, made a film in the process. And I brought all these crazy people with me. You know, I brought with me uh, these former drug addicts and conspiracy theorists and crazy artists and musicians. And I basically wanted to make a stew of chaos you know, and have this chaos stew and then cook it in this ancient form of spirituality and see what the result was. And that's what Sick Birds Day Easy is. And uh, I'm not sure if you ran into this. I know you went to Gabon and, and met Tatio. And, you know, I was actually surprised that when I got back, there were so many people that were kind of insulted by me doing this. Did you ever, did you have that response at all? Insulted back home or in Africa? What do you mean? Uh, insulted back home, you know, insulted by people thinking like, oh, well, it's such an insult for you as a Westerner to just go to Africa and think that you can just go there and get into their culture, you know? And um, no, not really. And um, it's also something I don't like show off or talk about unless it's certain people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because, well, where I live, Iboga is highly illegal. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's uh, I keep it too. on the down low. But 
I think it's more in your case probably because you made a movie. I didn't do that. I just went there for a personal experience. But you made a movie, so maybe that's why people were more like. Yeah, yeah. You put yourself in the a realm of criticism, I guess, by doing that. Yeah. But I don't regret it at all. I mean, to me, it was a very important, deep experience in my life, and it changed me forever. You know, so it's. And I kind of think too, it's. I don't know how we're supposed to live on this planet. Like, I don't like to believe that I'm all-knowing. And I kind of always felt a lot of... When I was in Africa, I felt so much love. And I felt like they wanted... They had... They approached me with open arms. And I did the same, you know? And I, I wanted to understand... I wanted to sort of live there and understand it. and And not be worried that I'm taking advantage of them, which I wasn't, you know, but it can look like that. Yeah, it's the white guilt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I kind of think, you know, and it's also because there's, we're kind of living in a really liberal time. Like things are very, everyone's walking on thin ice everywhere. At least that's what it's like in America right now. You know, nobody wants to insult everyone. Everyone's being really polite, which I think is a good, that's good. That's a positive thing. But at the same time, I think we should, there's a, a certain need for everything just to smash into each other. And it's going to be chaotic when it happens, but I feel like it needs to happen to learn and grow as a culture of humans on the planet. Yeah. One thing I thought was funny when I was in Gabon was that they all, the people I talked to there, they all wanted my life. Oh, yeah. You know, like all the things I have and all this stuff. And I wanted their life because, like, living in a simple house in the forest, no need for a job because you have your f land and your fruits. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted their life and they wanted my life. And they said, oh, but no, your life is better. I said, no, 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 you don't get it. I have lots of stuff, but it comes with a lot of stress to get mm -hmm. that stuff and oh, responsibilities. Yeah. You know, you on the movies, you see the car and the house and the uh, computers, but you don't see the work to get that stuff you know <laughs> oh yeah exactly and to keep so, it and to feel yeah. like you're owned by it you know and insurance and every, all this crap yeah i so, ran into this i definitely ran into the same thing like that was definitely you know fascinating too i thought everyone would like kind of hate me there you know or like at least not be trusting of me but everyone was so kind and so and that's like the one of the most important things about traveling and seeing parts of the world because you're only seeing other parts by living in like America. I'm only seeing other parts of the world through media, you know, through movies or the news. And you really can't understand, understand anything through that lens. You know, one of the ideas I was trying to explore with sick birds die easy was filmmaking and movies being the sort of modern myths of our time. And by that, I mean like a myth being a story that teaches a lesson. And the reason that there is, or not only teaches a lesson, but allows you to put yourself in the place of those characters and experience what that would feel like. And the sort of importance for those things throughout history have been, you know, giving people strength to accomplish things that seem impossible to accomplish or, you know, to scaring people to not do things because it's dangerous for them. You know, it's... It's like a storytelling being used to sort of teach lessons. And um, 
And I think it's a very, very powerful thing that the human brain sort of connects with, you know, stories. Like, we hear a story, and that draws us in. It somehow opens up a part of our brain that captivates us, and it is like it opens up this door in us, and then you can feed our imaginations. So it was really just trying to, you know, have Sick Birds That Easy be a myth, where it's a captivating story, and I wanted to create a sort of chaotic story that sucks people in, but then throughout it have the wisdom of that I was learning while I was there. Like any wisdom that I felt Tatio taught or that I learned from uh, the people living there, I'm trying to sort of incorporate that knowledge into a, a story to make the movie. And I think it's the same thing with the media and movies and stuff. They're just creating these myths and it can be a very dangerous thing, you know, like, I, I, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I struggle with it all the time because I'm a filmmaker. So I'm like, man, am I getting involved in something that could be really bad for, you know, for the world? Yeah, it's the, it's the youngest art form, so we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still a baby. Maybe video games is the youngest. This is <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. I wanted to make. I started by wanting to be to make video games. Video games are what I wanted to initially have a career in, like telling stories through video games. But then it kind of through studying video games, I started studying film, and then got into film more. But I still would love to go back to that one day. How long were you in Gabon when you made this movie? Uh, I think about a month. I was up there for about a month living in Ibondo and just, you know, trying to make the movie. I wouldn't say we went there and made the movie. We went there and tried to make a movie. And then the film that came out of it is a little bit of the movie we made, a little bit of us trying to make the movie, and a little bit of the sort of, yeah, behind the scenes of making the movie. And it all kind of got mashed together in this big collage in, in, in the end product. And... um um what you, did you do did they did Tatio do the initiations like normally or was it all a bit mixed up because you were so many and uh, I mean did you go through it yourself or just the people you had with you or it was all mixed up it was it was a definite uh kind of a disaster when we got there you know we're trying to make it we're also trying to work with Ibondo, but there was definitely a language and a culture barrier. I mean, and you worked with Tatsio, so it can be confusing at times, you know. And, and uh, we went there initially wanting three of us to do the ceremony, but that was if, and that was going to be the last week that we were there. We were all going to do the ceremony, and that was going to be the end of the film. So the way that I wrote the, the script was I kind of laid it all out with an outline and then left the ending unwritten. And I would say, we'll write the ending after the Iboga initiation. So that way we can learn from that and then figure out what the ending of the film is going to be. As a sort of an experiment. So as we went and started trying to make the film, we got so behind schedule and everything started falling apart and people were fighting and, and we had riffs and people, it was just a, you know, you've seen the movie, so you see how out of control it gets. And we're trying to make this, trying to make this one film and people are quitting and not wanting to do it and not showing up to set. So by the time we got to the last week, we still had tons of the film to make. And at that point, we were just like, let's give up on the movie and turn this into a documentary. And so then we started interviewing 
Tatio and interviewing people it's just so we could do have time to do the aboga initiation. And in the end, only one of us did the aboga initiation. Like, and there was people getting initiated while we were there, and so we were partaking in the sacrament, you know, in iboga, at, but taking, here's a couple spoonfuls, here's a couple spoonfuls, you know, and, and here's this one night we, I took like five spoonfuls, you know, and, and that'll, you know, and that's when I started having, people then started kind of, I mean, I guess you call it tripping is the easiest way to, <laughs> to explain it, you know, and, and people are tripping trying to make this film. And then I was really, really sensitive to it. I've, I'm like, a, I'm a big, I, I kind of believe in everything. I'm a believer in things and I'm open to everything. And so things like psychedelics tend to hit me really hard because I believe in them. And I just sort of let myself go to it where other people who don't know if they trust it. You know, it's like hypnotism. You know, people, some people are just more easy to get into a state of hypnosis and, and uh, other people just fight it tooth and nail, you know? So in the end, when it got to the ceremony, we only had like four days left and they said that I couldn't do it. They're like, Nick, we're not going to give you the 30 spoonfuls because you're so sensitive to it. We'd want to keep you here an extra week just to look over you to make sure you're okay. But then the other guy that was with us, Ross, who's kind of the lead character in the film, he's a conspiracy theorist, and I just wanted to know what would happen to Ross if he had something deep and spiritual happen to him. And they said, let's, let's give it to Ross. And they were kind of interested what his reaction would be to it too, because Ross is a very unique individual on the planet. And uh, you'll see that in the movie. So he took it, and he was part of the ceremony, and I don't want to ruin the ending, but I will. And he, uh, nothing happened. Like, he didn't experience anything. After 32 spoonfuls or something like that, he just completely fought it tooth and nail. At least that's what he tells me. I don't know. He, and he, he had no experience. Where me, I had five spoonfuls, and I, you know, m met one of my ancestors that came and visited me, you know? And, like, I had this a very amazing experience. So I came back with more questions. I thought I was going to come back from Gabon with a lot of questions answered, and I came back with twice as many questions. Yeah, it's it, Iboga can be a bit like a sledgehammer because uh, it can hit you pretty hard <laughs> and get, get, give you a lot of questions. But I also think that it chooses who to speak to. So some people might not be... Worthy is the wrong word. I or re not ready, maybe, or... I think that's, I had spoken to another shaman about it, and I said, you know, what do you think happened? And he said the same thing. He's like, well, don't think the plant isn't thinking, you know, don't think the plant knows what it, because it's not giving you, I mean, yes, it's giving you chemicals, but it's also giving you something deeper than that, that, it, that you can't trace, you know, by saying it's a chemical, it's something... I mean, who knows what it is? And it's choosing to give that to you or not. Like he said that same thing to me. And that seems like the most logical explanation to me. I mean, it's in logical in the a spiritual sense. But, you know, it's because, uh, yeah, yeah, I had an amazing experience. And and, and also, I think you have to be called um, like it called you because you. Yeah. But maybe Ross, it, it didn't call him. You threw him down there yeah yeah i brought him with me <laughs> so 
maybe that's also a big difference. You know, and I, and I thought it was, I feel when it comes to things like that realm, you know, I guess we could call it spirituality or, although that word bothers me for some reason. I don't know why, but it does. But I don't know what else to call it. But just that other realm that calls you. Like I always felt a kinship with that, you know, like I always like even right now, I feel like I've got two people with me that are that I just call them my buddies. You know, I've got these, you know, spirits that are with me right now. And I met one of them when I was in Africa. It was like I got to see the manifestation of this thing that I've always felt. And it was awesome, you know, and I'm just like, oh, that's good to know that I'm, you know, not crazy. <laughs> Instead of saying spiritual realm, you could say the higher illusion. Yeah. Like that. right now we're in the lower illusion and then the higher illusion. Yeah. And then maybe there's a higher one than that also. I, don't oh. know. <laughs> I think it would make sense. I mean, I, that's what always, you know, I feel like whenever I gaze into the higher illusion, one of the sort of constant lessons that teaches me is this, this idea of infinite, you know, I feel like, you know what I mean? It's this idea that beyond this lower illusion, this, you know, this slow moving thing that I, you know, about beyond this, it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And I feel like that's a lesson I've been taught a lot and I'm going to lock in on that being true. <laughs> so... It would surprise. It wouldn't surprise me if there was higher and higher and higher and higher illusions, and lower and lower and lower and lower illusions, and they just, you know, feed outward. Mm. And the lowest illusion is also the highest. It goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had. Uh, it, it fits with this we just spoke about. Uh, one of the visions I had when I did the iboga was, I saw this massive door, like gigantic door and it looked ancient and you know iboga for me it works like I'm it's like I don't hear the voice but when I see something I know what it is it's like uh, some somebody's narrate narrating it for me I don't know how I can really explain it but I knew that this door was ancient anyway for some reason and I looked behind it and there was this gigantic machine And for some reason, I knew that nobody knew who'd built it. It's always been there. Uh, and it was pumping out universes. Every, like a heartbeat, like... Doof, doof, doof. A universe, like every second. Uh, and so that, that was my vision of this infinity. Because, like, you know, a universe is pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Just, pumping them out like constantly for eternity oh definitely <laughs> i've had the experience of um like speaking of video games i have a lot of visions that somehow relate back to my experiences playing video games because that was for me as a child that was my i mean in a way that's kind of like another form of mythology and another form of sort of the magic of growing up and so anyways I'm not sure if you ever played games, and sometimes in the early games you could break outside the level, and you would somehow kind of accidentally glitch through a wall and be able to see what the level looked like from the outside looking in and see all the mechanics and all the uh, geometry that's building it, you know? So I've definitely had those experiences where I break through this, this wall of this reality that I'm experiencing with you, 
and seeing the sort of geometry and cogs in place that are building it all and then kind of falling into that and seeing and zooming out and seeing that there's this isn't just the only level that we're in and it's this level that moves on and 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 on yeah i never saw that i never saw the heartbeat machine though that sounds pretty sweet another thing i think about with video games is that if 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 our life is like a video game, you know, like when you play a video game and the guy you're playing dies, you load a new guy, you don't care, you know, <laughs> like just play another guy. But if the if the character in the video game thought he was real and he died, you know, he'll be he'll be scared to die and he dies, and he doesn't realize that it's just this character in a video game, you know. So I imagine like if one possibility is when we die, we go to the higher illusion or whatever and we realize oh we were just playing a game and if you look at it like this because this was also another vision i had was you know to be like a starving ethiopian uh, child with flies all over you know horrible life you know you wouldn't want to be born into that life but if this video game thing is true then maybe like when you die you're like oh i want to be experience starving in Ethiopia, that'd be fun, you know. While you're doing it, you don't realize it, but as soon as you die, you go, "Oh, that was fun." You know, oh, yeah, that yeah. was an experience. You know? I've had that same exact vision, to be honest with you. I had this vision once of these sort of uh, creatures, you know, and I'm not sure what they are. They were just sort of, is, you know, I, I tend to think part of my, like you seeing the door. A bit of that is still your imagination that you've been creating with your DNA, you know, it's, it's still, I feel like we kind of project a little bit and that's sort of part of our learning process. And I think that's part of the interesting thing of being a human. Anyway, so I projected, I saw these little creatures. They almost look like the little squiggly lines on the back when you close your eyes and you see those little faint things. So these little creatures and they were doing exactly what you're saying. You know, they're up in the higher reality saying, oh, you know what would be great? I want to be a butterfly. And they go down there and experience that. You know, it'd be great. I want to be in love. I'm going to go find a great love and feel that love feeling. Or I'm going to go and be a drug addict, you know, because that is just what I, the experience that I want this, this time through. So, uh, you know, I've, I've had the same, I've had that same vision, to be honest with you. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and, and you met your ancestors or, or an ancestor, you said? I think, you know, this, and I, I don't know. I mean, I had... The night where it was the first Iboga initiation that we went to, and it was me, my producer Dana, and Ross, the guy who took the initiation at the end, and they were kind of introducing us to everyone. Like, Tatio was introducing us to the shamans that have come in from the forest of Gabon to experience the initiation. And, uh, you know, everyone else that have kind of come around, and they're sitting around in the, in the ship, as they call it, which is kind of like the temple. And we sat all, all, he sat all three of us down in front of the sacred tree and put this giant bowl of iboga in front of us. And Tatio was like, if you feel like you want to have a, a spoonful of it, have a spoonful of it. And then, so we were like, all right. So we started eating this iboga, you know, we're like, but I was very respectful. It wasn't like, you know, but then immediately everyone got super mad at us for taking the iboga. And we were like, what? He told us to. He told us to. And then they said, look at them, but look at their shirts. 
And all three of us, we were wearing a red, white, and blue shirts, three different shirts. And they're like, this is classic America, just coming in and taking from us. And I was like, no, 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 no. The shaman said we could have a bite. The shaman, and we got in this big, and this happened a lot when we were there. Like suddenly we'd find that we insulted everyone on accident. And so then everything, the, the waters were calm. And they're like, oh, the shaman said you could do it. That's fine. Well, here, have another one. So then we took another one. And then we took some more. And then that night, I sat and, you know, it's, it's this amazing experience. You just sit and you close your eyes. And it's almost like the music that they're playing is created specifically for this experience. And they've been honing it in for a thousand years. You know, like the, um, the sacred harp and the, the shakers and the rattlers and the mabongo. Ma, what is that instrument called? The bowed uh, one? Uh, Ngongo, I think. Ngongo, yeah. I can't remember. You know, it's like all that has been honed in musically to sort of take you on this journey. I really do believe that. You know, that's, and, and that's even happens today. Like, there was music created specifically for when you're tripping on LSD, you know, or music created specifically when you're on ecstasy. Or that's, and so I feel like the, the instrumentation that they were playing was created specifically for this Iboga experience. And so I just sat there and closed my eyes and just started taking me places. And that, this wasn't 30 spoonfuls, this was just five. And I was just experiencing and going and was having all these visions and was feeling myself being pulled in different directions. And I said, all right, I gotta go take a break. You know, I gotta go rest because we had to wake up at six in the morning the next day to shoot. So I go back to the room where I was staying and, and fall asleep. And then in the middle of the night, someone wakes me up. And I thought there was a fire or something like that. Somebody, you know, like, get up, get up. And I get up out of bed because I see this person. And I'm like, who's this guy in my room that just woke me up? And then as my eyes began to focus, I was like, realized that this wasn't a human <laughs> that woke me up at all. And it was, you know, it was in the shape of a man, you know. And, and to be honest, it looked like an angel. You know, it looked like sort of the images of angels I was shown as a child. But the difference was is that they had a, their third eye was glowing, you know. And so you don't see any angels in, like, uh, school growing up with third eyes. That's more of an Eastern thing. So I thought that was pretty beautiful. And then they, he just sat there and just, he was this, the third eye filled the whole room with light. It was this glowing third eye. And then he had these wings and uh, I just sat there and I woke up the guy next to me and I'm like, hey man, do you see what I'm seeing? And he was like, I don't, but just go with it, just enjoy it. And so I just sat there with this guy and he played drums for me and just made me feel safe. It was the main essence of it, you know? And I, I kind of kick myself because I'm like, man, should I have stood up and tried to go interact more instead of just sitting there and watching? But I guess I can't really regret anything. What, what felt right was just sitting there and watching and just being in the presence of something that was like a, you know, a deity. And was it an ancestor? I don't know. I, I, just, I say ancestor because that's what I was told it was, you know. And it's, Iboga is kind of known for that. I feel like it was, that was part of the process of Iboga in the ancient times as well was, you know, communing with your ancestors and the importance of ancestors. So I would like to think it was an ancestor, but I don't know. You know, it could have just been 
a spirit. It could have been, I, I, I do know that I think what it was is something that's always been with me, you know, and, and is maybe with me right now. Maybe it was your higher self. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was my higher self. There's this, it's one of those things where I, I don't think I'll ever know the answer and that's okay. You know, it was, it will come and I don't want to, I'm not in any, uh, big eager rush to figure it out, but it made me feel good, whatever it was. And it made me feel protected while I was there the rest of the time. Cause things were getting scary, you know, like, and it made me feel safe. And then I vomited like crazy and it was the worst vomiting I've ever done in my life. Mm, yeah, me too. When I vomited, it's horrible. <laughs> it was not good. It wasn't like a, Oh, I'm feeling sick to my stomach. It was like, I don't know if I should go to the hospital or something. <laughs> and then the shaman Tatio said, you're just scared. Just let the vomit come. Cause it was making me choke. I would vomit and then I wouldn't be able to take a breath in and I would panic and it was frightening, but I think that's okay. It was kind of taught me, made me not want to do the iboga again. And, and I think that was for the best. I don't think I was really supposed to, it was, it gave me what it needed to give me at that moment, you know? And I feel like my purpose there was in the end was less about breaking through some, you know, wall of, figuring out spirituality and becoming holier or something like that. I think my purpose there was to create something. It was, I was there to make, I was there to make art. And I think the Iboga itself had called me there to make art, but then didn't necessarily want me to get focused on the higher illusion. You know, it wanted me to focus on, cause I think there's a couple forms of, for me, and I don't know if, anyone else relates to this. I kind of think they do, but there, I think there's many ways of connecting to the higher realm, whatever you want to call it, name it, whatever you want. There's many ways of connecting to it. And one of them are these sacred rituals that use plant consciousness to help you connect. And I think also things as simple as, you know, an activity that you're really good at, like something that is your, natural talent like if you're really good at playing guitar or if you're really good at woodworking you know the thing that makes you feel like you're this is why you are here i feel like when you do those activities those are also a way of connecting you know like i've i've been you know when you see someone like jimi hendrix play the guitar and he is not even thinking about what he's going to play anymore he's just completely giving himself up to this higher realm, at least what I believe, or if you watch an amazing jazz musician where they just let go, I think that's, they're connecting that way too. And, you know, and that's, as an artist, that's your sort of ultimate goal is to be able to get to that, that spot. And if, and if you're a filmmaker like myself, that comes with writing. You know, when I write, I try not to think what I'm going to write about. I just let myself go to it and let my higher self or whatever write for me. You know, and then I, I start to see the characters speaking in my head and I just write down what they're saying. So for me, when I was in Africa, I, I, I went through the Iboga experience and afterwards it was like, okay, for the rest of the time I'm here, I have to connect to this sort of spiritual realm by creating and trying to make this movie and connect that way. Were you satisfied now at the end after it's been a while since it was finished, I guess? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it came out a year ago, maybe less than a year ago, about a year ago, actually. It came out in like January of last year, and no, I'm not done with this yet. It doesn't feel like it's over. It it I I made a place with it where I'm satisfied that it's done the film itself but I don't I mean no answers were given I don't know it's it's hard to explain I, I, I guess I can't answer it yet I don't think it is I think there's still something else left with this and I haven't quite figured it out yet I think it this film and the experience it experience catapulted me into a new chapter of my life and that was very important for me. And now I'm kind of slowly, I think there's things that I like to call it the, you, know, you rubber band, you know, there's a, you shoot out into these far out places and then you kind of slowly pull yourself back to reality and take with you the lessons and knowledge that you've learned. And then you get back to reality and then you shoot out again, you know, and making this film, I shot out as far as I possibly could go. And then once I created, I've been slowly reeling myself back in. And I don't think I've reeled myself all the way back in yet. And so, and I don't think I will feel complete with this process of making this film until I'm completely reeled back in. And then I'll shoot back out again with whatever the next film is I make. But I'm still, still figuring, figuring, figuring it out, you know. So, yeah, so where that where I go next, I have no idea. Although I really enjoy it. People seem to really like Sick Birds. Some people really hate it, and some people really love it. You know, and I've gotten lots of emails on the Facebook page of people saying, this film really helped me, and it saw me see things in a new way, or it helped me talk to my friend who's a drug addict about alternate ways of healing and healing themselves, and... So I know good has come from the film, and I love that about it. And it's, yeah. No, it's good if people like it or hate it, because then it's usually good. It's mm-hmm. when people say, oh, it's all right. No, nobody yeah, yeah. likes it, then it's pr- probably shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You want to be polarizing. The, yeah. the, the, uh, Ellen Burstyn, who's an actress that I worked with on my first film, said things that are pure and strong and good are can do really horrible things and really amazing things you know like you look at nuclear power it could power an entire town or destroy an entire city you know it can go in these two different ways and i think that's the same thing with the art and the things you create you know you people even if you really hate it you're affecting someone and usually why they hate it is because it's giving them really strong feelings Mm. and i think that's the purpose of a lot of times with art is to give people feelings, you know, so they don't have to go around the world feeling numb, you know, especially in the society that we live in now, which is really easy to feel numb. And if you can create really strong art, even if they hate it, at least they're feeling something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that that nuclear power thing you said reminded me of this Terrence McKenna quote where he says, it's the, is the future of humanity a mushroom cloud or a mushroom? <laughs> exactly. I also feel, I've also kind of thought, you know, I mean, because America is, is a really big place. And it's like trying to govern these all these states all at the same time. And it makes it impossible. 
it's not that people don't want positive things in America. It's just that it's so difficult to try to get things to happen here. You know, there's so much, so many things in your way where it seems like in the smaller countries, like over in, in Europe, it might be easier to pass something as simple as, you know, healthcare, or, you know, things like that. It seems it's a, the, not as difficult as America where you've got so many different kinds of people fighting against something and for something and, you know, there's like always, a, there's plenty of good ideas everywhere, but actually implementing them into a society is, is difficult. You know, like take shamanism or something. Like let's say, or let's take Iboga. You know, Iboga could be a very valuable thing in our society if it was looked at as a potential cure for addiction, Right? Have you studied that? Have you studied that part of? I'm sure Tatio brought it up to you. You know, so for anyone who doesn't know, there is a culture, a world culture of. You know, specifically, I think heroin addicts or junkies, who can, go through an Iboga initiation, and there's a high, probability of them. You know, it w- I wouldn't say it's a complete cure from what I've experienced, but it is a very powerful, strong, impactful first step away from addiction that seems to work a lot more efficiently than AA or methadone, you know, or, you know, things like that. It's, but because of its psychedelic properties and because of the way that most people in America look at things like psychedelia it'll never be something that we can even experiment with here, you know? I just think it's so silly that we don't legalize these things. And not because I want everyone fucked up on the streets, but because I think it would, the society, you're not going to stop people from taking drugs. You know, you're not going to do it. We are, we will not be chained down and said, you can't do that, you can do that. That's just not the way anyone is programmed. And... To me, it's just, so you should just legalize everything, and then you'll be able. I then I mean, because so many people are dying out there, and not because they're taking drugs, but because they get caught up in the scene of all these illegal activities that happen with drugs. And you know, so I'm not saying I want to legalize drugs because I want to be a fucking stoner for the rest of my life. I'm just saying I just think it's better for a society. I think the society would be stronger with drugs legalized and with looking at things like mushrooms and ayahuasca and iboga as something sacred that you can learn from and be a, you know, I just, that was my dream making this film. You know, I I made this film thinking, I want to make a film about these things so it can get out there and it can be more normal, you know? So just so the idea is out there that this, that there are people in the world that don't look at these things like mushrooms and iboga as as tools to get fucked up and they look at them as tools to heal their society and to help their society grow and i really believed that that would could be maybe that's what my purpose is or maybe that's what my calling is to go and and push this idea and sick birds was the result of that you know and in the end you know, all, if all Sickbirds does is introduce people that had never heard about Iboga before and now they know about it, then that's good enough for me, you know, whether they like the film or not. Yeah. 
I remember hearing about what you experienced doing psychedelics before I'd done it, like from people who didn't like psychedelics or oh, you'll see a pink elephant jumping around or, you know, whatever they say. Or when you watch, watch Hollywood movies and they might have somebody doing psychedelics and you can see what they experience. But then when I actually did psychedelics, I realized they were all lying <laughs> you know, like, yeah. or they didn't know what the hell they were talking about because that's not what it was like at all. Yeah, yeah. Or there, it's just they kind of were just sounding cool, you know, making it a drug experience rather than something deeper than that. You know, and if like imagine if you grew up and you were told that things like mushrooms or LSD or psychedelics, if those were like deep things that when you're ready for them, you can do them. You know, and those are their deep, powerful things, and that's what you went into it thinking. Rather than going into it thinking like, oh, this is going to make me see pink elephants and think I can fly and I'm going to jump off a building, you know, where, which is what I always thought was going to happen when I took mushrooms, you know, like I was told that it's going to make me take off all my clothes and, and jump off a building because I think I can fly. I, I, I remember because I started doing these initiations, uh, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I was 29, 30 or something like that. And uh, I, I, I instantly, when I did it, I thought, oh, why didn't I waste 15 years of my life? I should have done this earlier. <laughs> uh-huh. Skipped Absolutely. loads of stupid stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also had that thing one one time. I just sat up and during the initiation, I just sat up and realized, hey, now I am a man. <laughs> you did? Yeah, I had this thing like, now I'm a man. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer a child, you know. I, I don't know what happened. It's just my brain just changed. Yeah, like now over. I have to be responsible and not in like the uh, normal society way responsible. Just you know, like spiritually responsible and this Very kind of res- thing. responsible, responsible for yourself. Yeah, and and people around me or mm. things like that. I mean, maybe that's something. You know, this is would just be a theory, but I mean, I wonder how many people are, you know, 40 year old children, 50 year old children that are out there. And that could be a great example of why people are still acting like children and, you know, and not sharing, <laughs> you know, and, and just taking everything for themselves and just living completely, uh, hedonistically just being like mine, 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 mine. And I'm the best and I'm the best. It's funny you say that because, uh, on, my very first uh, ayahuasca initiation because before I did any psychedelics I was kind of like this Ross guy I was a lot into uh, conspiracy theories and I really hated at that time it was George Bush and this kind of evil mentality and all these people ruling the world and all this stuff and then the ayahuasca just told me don't forget about all those people they're meaningless they're just just children so so ever since then, I, 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 don't, I don't care about those people anymore. I just I laugh at them more like you laugh at a, a child who's acting funny, you know, but <laughs> they're not important. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's and I am like that, too. But then that also, you know, people like Ross, like Ross's last conversation I had with Ross, the conspiracy theorist, and he's very passionate, man, you know, and he passionately believes that our world is falling apart and and he believes by me not caring and not trying to put up a huge fight 
when my instinct after Iboga and after this whole experience was just to sort of let go and only take care of myself, you know, then that really upset him. You know, he's saying, you aren't trying hard enough then. You know, you are giving up and giving the world to these evil children. You know, and, and I cannot, I can't argue with Ross. I'm like, well, I guess you're right if that's the way you want to look at it. But I just don't think I have any, my skills aren't the skills needed to take on, a, you know, a government, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, my skills are, in all honesty, my sk- skills are, are to be an optimistic creator that wants to see the goodness in people and wants to have the world change in a more positive way. And so, yeah, so, you know, I haven't talked to Ross since the movie came out. It's almost been a year. You know, he was so upset with me for not fighting hard enough for the movie. Like he wanted me to push and to be, you know, a fighter because this movie is for him. It was a way to get his conspiracy theories in the world out there to let the world know. And he's really, you'll see in the film, he's very anti-Israel, you know, and, and things like that. And he thinks that Israel is going to destroy the world, which, uh, I don't think it's that specific. I think if it's anything, it's all the governments are kind of destroying the world equally and doing horrible things in the name of, in the name of, I don't know, supremacy he's not worried he's gonna get the anti-defamation league or whatever called after he's gonna go he's after not him. worried about it at all <laughs> you know i was worried that was gonna happen because i put his anti-israel slander in the film which i could have and that gets me in trouble a lot too but i just felt well if people believe this here's ross see this is someone and he's one of millions of people who believe this. I can't just pretend that it does. he doesn't exist on the planet. This is a reality that he is existing in, that he believes in, and I'm, as a filmmaker, have to show that this reality exists. You know, I'm not going to hide it. But, be- but to be fair, you know, the conspiracies, you know, they are somewhat true, all of them also, you know. Like, it's not, it's not, I, don't, I, I believe in most of them in in certain de- degree, it's just that, like, I fo- I decide not to focus on it. Like, it doesn't help my life. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I kind of feel the same way. It's like, if you dig into most conspiracies, there's truth in them. There's always other things, too. There's always things that people leave out to make their case look better. You know, and there's always, there's, I don't know. Anything you look at, there's hundreds of different ways of looking at it, you know, and I can, and and the thing with imagination and with how we look at things is if I want to look at something and believe that it is, you know, if I look at a a block of clay and I want to look at it and say, this is an elephant. If I turn it this way, then it's also, you know, a bird. If you turn it this way, it's just, however you want to look at it, you can through all the information you have available, you can bend things to make it look like the truth for you. But then you can also look at it a different way and, and do the same thing, you know. And so there's, you know, you can say there's a conspiracy that America used 9-11 as a way to pass all these laws that allow them to, you know, spy on Americans, right? So, which is pretty true. I mean, everything that all the laws that got passed after 9-11 were these ways of, you know, in the name of catching terrorists, spy on the people of America, you, you know, there, there is, that is the truth, you know, there is all these things, but 
you can't just go and say it because there's a million other things that that go into that. You know, that's that's the thing that the thing that makes it hard for me to believe any. I I can't believe anything anymore. There's so many ways of looking at things that if I choose one way of looking at it, I feel like I'm limiting myself. You know, because there's a full so then, so conspiracy theories. That's I'm in the same boat as you. I'm like I'm not even gonna think about them because I could start thinking about them and I could let them make me feel horrible, or I could just recognize that that conspiracy theory that has to do with that is one way of looking at it and there's a hundred other ways to look at it and what am I going to do? Argue with people for the rest of my life? Like, that's not the life I want to live. Mm. But if people want to watch this movie where, or film, uh, where, where can they find it? I think the best way to watch it is iTunes. Like, it's, that's got the best quality. Um, you know, you can download it on iTunes. It's like $9.99 or something like that and then you could get it up on your television set or you can put it on a flash drive, you know, take it somewhere to watch. Um, you can also buy DVDs, and I really think the DVDs are awesome. I put a lot of work into the DVDs. It comes with the soundtrack. The guy Sam in the movie wrote all the music. He scored it. He's kind of the minstrel of the movie. He sings throughout it. And it's got his soundtrack. It's got hours and hours of deleted scenes, and there's three different commentaries. So the DVD is really good. So you just look up Google Sick Birds Die Easy DVD, And then the final easy way would just be go to Hulu. Probably the I probably iTunes is the best worldwide way of getting it. And then we have a Facebook page that I rarely update, but when I do, you know, and, and I'm I'm just now decided to do a secondary push of Sick Birds Die Easy. I'm started working with this this you know, we didn't push it very hard. You know, I was part of making a movie, then you gotta sell it, you know, and you got gotta get people to see it. And I don't, and the, I mean, like you said, the only w- reason you watch Sick Birds is because Tatio told you about it. You know, it's just so hard to get the word out to, even though there are 7 billion people, I can't get 200 people to watch Sick Birds because it's just so hard. You know, you have to pay for it. You have to pay for publicity. So, but anyways, I've been saving my money. And so I, I'm hoping to do a, you know, a push of Sick Birds and put some money behind advertising for it. And see what happens you know i would be doing a disservice to myself and the film if i didn't at least try to get it out there <laughs> using advertisement but i'll uh, market your movie as much as i can of course i appreciate that um so you liked it are you on the team of liking the film yeah otherwise you wouldn't be on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> well i'm very honored thank you cool well uh thank you for talking to me Of course, I had a great. This is a great conversation. It was, um, like I said earlier, it, it's always positive for me to talk about these things because it it's so easy to not think about them sometimes, you know. And you kind of get lost in having an hour and a half long conversation talking about this kind of stuff. I think is very enlightening. One interesting little myth that Nick told me about in this talk that I've actually edited out because for some reason Nick's recording stopped in mid-sentence and I could not edit it in a way that would make the break invisible to you, the listener. But what Nick was talking about made his actual recording failure even more interesting. Listen yourself and see why. I asked the the one question... And this is this is actually an interesting story. So we interviewed we interviewed four pygmies. And it was this 
Big deal because they didn't want to be interviewed. But Tatio talked them into it because Tatio be- believed in us. And he still believes in us in this film. Where other people, like, I don't know if you met Jan. Yeah. You know, he hates me. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he can be, he's a strong Yeah, he's a, he's a warrior type. Yeah. But, you know, he didn't, but, but he also, he works with Tatio and he believes in Tatio. And Tatio is his father, not in the weedy world, he's his father, you know. So Tatio said, you can trust these filmmakers. And so I got to interview the Pygmies. The weird thing about it is, out of all the footage we shot, that footage was erased somehow. And I have no idea how. It just came out black and gone. So, which goes back to like, maybe we weren't supposed to be interviewing them. But the things that they told me were, I was like, they, they gave a warning. Like they were saying in the times of us interviewing, they're like, we, this is a warning. You know, and he said to keep a look. He said the weather is changing. You know, he's like, the weather is changing and it's, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And the planet is being destroyed. Spooky. Now, go to iTunes and search for Sick Birds Die Easy if you want to check out the film, which you should. Uh, or go straight to sickbirdsdieeasy.com. You can also check out Natural Born Alchemist for additional links related to this episode. What could be better to conclude this episode than with a track from the mix album Gabon People, provided to me by my bewitty friend Ben. And Ben... I talked to in episode 7 if you want to check that out. The song is called Embolo. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs> Yeah!